Welcome to African Film. African Film lovers and cinematic explorers, welcome to another episode of the African Film Podcast. Now, if this is your first time hearing about us, hi, this is a space where we explore the African film industry through the eyes of its practitioners. And Zoom with me is a cultural reservoir who has lived many lives. He's been a journalist for publications such as IOL, frontman vocalist for a band called Life Below, and an event organizer working within multiple cultural fields within Durban from music to film. What brings him here is his cultural organizing around film. For the last couple of years, our guest has curated the panels and conversations for the Durban Film Mart, Africa's largest film market, which I was part of this year, and his work has also expanded into other key festivals like Wolanala, as well as the Center for Creative Arts. This decade also saw him get his filmmaking credits up as a producer for documentaries, and if word on the street is that we believe more genres and formats are on the way. He is going to fill in the blanks of what I couldn't. I'm talking about Mitchell Harper. How are you doing, sir? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And shout out to the audience. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. It's been a good day. It's a lovely day here in Belfast, Northern Ireland. But it's good to be talking about film with a fellow film lover. I can see you even you got your blonde highlights rocking a new look. Oh, uh, you know, like all brainers in the summer, we love to go blonde. So that's where it's at. <laughs> so now, now that we've got this context, that this is a continental conversation, we're going to start how we usually start with the with this podcast, which is ask you, what is your favorite African film right now and why? Ooh, that's a very tough one. Hey, I'm gonna go with the generic answer. It's kind of recency bias, but not really recency bias. I think for me, it's the Snow Burial's Resurrection um, by Jeremiah. That is for me the like it's. It sticks out in my mind because it's so artistically different to a lot of the films. I mean, it has a lot of like European references in it, but I really, really do. I really loved it. I thought it was really groundbreaking. I think also then another one that's a close second for me is Philippe Lecoq's uh, Night of Kings. It's always been something that's. that's I really have stuck yet. Out to me. Where can I watch that? I have been wanting to watch that, but I have not found a legal place to be able to consume that film. Um, last I saw, it was available on movie which I can recommend for all interested audiences, please get yourself a movie account. That's with the use of a VPN. I was able to find it there at the end of last year, but I've watched it at other festivals. And for me, it was, that was a film that really, like really touched me. I really loved it. So what is it specifically about This is a Barrel That's Not a Resurrection? Because you have touched on how you think it's groundbreaking. What are those groundbreaking elements for you that just get your juices flowing? So for me, I think there's reasons why I love it on so many levels. I think firstly, the, the performance of the lead actress was phenomenal. I think number two, and all the actors involved from, you know, uh, so I think that for me is, is incredible. I think the avant-garde-ness of which is approach, especially in the way that it's unpacking things that are very crucial to the African context. So for an example, you know, the spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen us, it's a film which often deals with the issues around land and around ownership, not only the colonial context of it, but also in the modern context. The dynamics. Yeah. What the actual minute details. We had done a minor. It was our film club review on, I think, episode four. Mm -hmm. So if you go to our season one, episode four, we do talk about it there. But yeah, what I do love about the film, because I have this thing of, 
differentiating what I appreciate about a film versus a film I enjoy. And personally, this is a burial, not a resurrection. Sorry, this is not a burial, it's, it's a resurrection. I always mm. get that part mixed up. Marky title. Um, <laughs> yes, but it's a film which I appreciate a lot more than I enjoy in terms of my personal takes. But in terms of just dealing with the text, the way that it approaches the actual human dynamics of what land means and the emotional ties that come to not just owning a land but being from a land because Mm -hmm. the basic concept for those who have not watched the film is that the film begins with this grandmother who is burying the last living relative of her family Mm -hmm. so her kids have all died and now she's burying I think her grandson yeah the grandson has died so this woman is in the darkest of places because she's had to bury all of these people. Now, as this information is, is happening, they're being told that the town which they live in, in which all of her family members are buried, mm-hmm. they have to be repatriated, they have to be moved from that town, mm-hmm. relocated to a city. And this woman, as one of her final acts, not just a, a financial thing, their emotional ties, mm-hmm. is trying to fight for her survival to be able to live on this land because what they wanted to relocate them for is to be able to build a river to service the city. Yeah. So these farm people are now being the entire way of life and how they live, which is actually even like financially not even tied to capitalism Mm -hmm. in the way that we are in terms of you have to cook, you have to make money to feed themselves. These people can already feed themselves off of the land that they're on. Like there are a lot of dynamics which come into it, which watching it as a text is incredibly insightful. It's moving, it's heartbreaking. But for me personally, just like the pacing of it, which is key to the film being Mm -hmm. how it is, for me as an enjoyment level I, I just don't like movies which are that slowly paced which is then why i say like i appreciate it mm-hmm. because i also understand why it has to be that slow paced but had i not watched it in the cinema i would have struggled to fully get to the end of the film and say that i enjoyed the film yeah it's not for everyone in terms of pacing and in terms of style i think it uh, really touches on some of the european new wave of cinema and that real sort of avant-gardeness in a way that if you're used to the world of exciting fast-paced moving films you know it's very hard to digest it but if, if you love independent art house cinema i think it's a it's a must for everybody another film that sorry that as we were discussing it has a very similar context of its dealing with direct issues but not being on the nose is a film called The Man Who Sold the Skin. It's a Tunisian film that came out last year. Yes. The lady's name is just escaping, but we had her in the program in the, at the FM 2021. Her film is also phenomenal. I think it's a film that also, you know, given the context of uh, human dynamics, the history of Africa, the history of what it means to be African in a modern context and dealing with those colonial um, issues. I think it's deeply important. Incredible. So I feel like I'm going to butcher this name. So if I do, and then you you have the right part, I will just say it, and then you can say it back, and yeah, I'll yeah. just remove myself. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it's directed by Kautha Ben Hania. Uh, Katua Ben Hania, yeah. Katua Ben Hania, yeah, that's right. So Katua Ben Hania is yeah. the writer and director of that. Yeah, movie. and she was incredible as well. Great interview. If you have a chance, go watch it on the DFM uh, website. So now, before we get to DFM, I want to do some groundwork in understanding a bit of you and your context, because as I think has been stated to you 
on multiple podcasts and in multiple situations you're a very interesting fellow so you come from a family of organizers who have ties in advocacy and journalism actually just like political and not just general advocacy political advocacy to be specific and journalism how much is that tied into your worldview and how you approach your work um, you look, it goes very far back. I mean, it starts with, you know, my father, my grandfather reading things like while while also, you know, as a normal child reading things like nursery rhymes, you know, you also fed like the the communist manifesto as a, as a kid. Um, and as well as my like one of the ways that I was that I often like got bedtime stories or or like was was taught to read was to read things like newspapers. So for me, it's always it's always informed a lot of what I do. Um, I was a journalist um, and also a former Young Communist League member when I was in when I was younger, and a lot of that sort of political influence ties very much into the work that I do. Um, as a journalist, you know, I, I focus mostly on uh, the course and crime beats, but also touching on other things, um, and just being in touch with the reality of what humans experience has always been deeply important to me, and that's fed into my much larger influences in what I do, whether it be the work that I do, but also the way that I think, the way that I approach life as a human being, I think it's deeply important. Um, my father is a quite a noted political journalist and also was a member of Kasatu during the 90s, which, you know, a lot of that sort of thinking and that radical thinking got to me. But I think I had a real political awakening when I was around 16 and 16 or 17, maybe a little bit younger, even maybe like 15 and it came from different influences. It came from not only journalism, but also listening to like rap music when I was seven and like listening to, uh, you know, the, everyone's introduction is like Eminem. But then I started listening to stuff like, like Nas. And when I was maybe around eight, nine, ten years old, I started discovering like underground or backpack hip hop. So we're talking things like Immortal Technique, Feral Manch. That became an influence for me. And then I've discovered hardcore punk music, which was like, there's punk and then there's hardcore punk. A lot of it can be very politically driven and, and like have a very humanist side. For the longest yeah. time, I was into a lot of those ideals. And then when I became, when I was turned around 15 or 16, I started reading things like, you know, I started reading about the, the likes of Huey P. Newton. I already knew who Malcolm X was and Martin Luther King. But I started really like delving into that sort of work, you know, work of Muma Jabbar, who was, a mem- I'm sorry if I've if I butchered the name, but he was obviously a Black Panther who was locked up and it still remains in prison. So a lot of that sort of work then came to me. And then obviously, as I get older, I start hanging around very important people who are quite influential to my life. I start learning about things like radical feminism. And I've had lots of different influences on like a micro level, but also the grander level who have helped to change my thinking around that as well. Um, and then obviously, as time shifts, you know, and you have those bases of work, it starts to influence and creep into your everyday life. And whether it just be the way that I operate as a human, but also especially more importantly, my work and understanding the power of decolonial thinking and how that can actually have an influence and socialism as well, how that can have an influence on the work that you do and still does to this day. Yeah. Part of the reason why I asked that question before we actually get into the scope of what it is, what it is that you do is because I do think it's a key part of what you do, because from my understanding, since you are a cultural program and if we were to take the Durban format, for example, so from my understanding and from how I was introduced to this, Mitchell is the, the Durban format of the Durban form market has both the market side of things as well as the conversational side of things. Mm-hmm. And the conversational side of things is what you curate. So you create not only what the topic is going to be, but also who are the people who are going to be conversating within these topics. And you're now doing this not from a purely South African perspective, but you're doing this to give a continental 
perspective, or at least not, it's not a continental perspective, but have people from multiple parts of the continent chiming into this conversation. So for example, the conversation which I had was, I represented really a kind of South African perspective, but I'm also Kenyan, and we also had a Botswanan um, person who also does film podcasts, because the conversation was about new age media. So having that and understanding what roused your thinking, I think is also important to then understand how it is that you then start making decisions of who you're going to be curating conversations of for the continent's biggest film market. But how did you even get to cultural organizing? Like, what was that leap from journalism into cultural organizing? So it's quite an interesting one, and it's a little bit of a long one. So forgive me for the people who don't like long stories, but here it goes. So I was a journalist in 20, I'd started working and I'd been a full-time journalist up until 2013. Yeah, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, halfway through there. And I left journalism and tried my hand at marketing and deeply hated it. It was not what I wanted to really do. I had gone from a life on the road and having excitement and dealing with like very like real things. Um, And I think I wanted to pivot into something that was more stable due to experiencing burnout. But also I just wanted to be like, take myself out of some realness and like what I was experiencing. But I realized that I didn't really like it. So I came back. I had been living in Johannesburg, Pretoria area for a while and working in there. And then I decided to move back to Durban. And while I was back in Durban, I was freelancing again in journalism. But I'd actually seen a post for a volunteer position at the Durban International Film Festival. So I had a history of attending the Durban International Film Festival as a journalist through blagging my way that I would go and cover the festival and do film reviews. And maybe once or twice I actually had reviewed a film, but most of the time I just went for free, to be honest with you. And I thought to myself, this is going to be a great way to watch films for free. While I was there, it was the year where, this is where it gets a bit long-winded, it was supposed to be the year where cinemas had made a transition from analog cinema style projection to a digital cinema projection, so DCP system. And yeah. to be honest with you, the cinemas weren't ready for the transition and a lot of things went wrong and it required a lot of like on your feet thinking. And this is where I met someone who brought me into the Center for Creative Arts to work at the film festival, Tiny Mungwe. She had kind of recognized that I was able to think on my feet and help out and helping to do running for the film festival festival manager at the time, Peter Machen, who ironically had been my creative writing lecturer at Durban University of Technology when I was studying to become a journalist. So we had a connection and we we knew each other then. And so yeah. while like working with him and Tiny obviously recognized her, she said, you know, do you want to come and work for the Center for Creative Arts? And I was like, okay, cool. And I'd known what the Center for Creative Arts was because I knew of their four other, the three other festivals, sorry, that they did, which was Time of the Writer, which was an international literature festival, Jumbo Contemporary Dance Festival, which in a in its name, it's a contemporary dance festival, and obviously Poetry Africa, which was one of the biggest um, poetry festivals on the continent at the time. So I went and joined them full time and worked with them. Initially, I worked with Tiny in the Talents Durban program and working so closely with her at the time. This is where the beginning of the influence came. So it came not only with the idea of um, having an appreciation for African film, but also having an appreciation for African practitioners and what they do and understanding that thinking and I only stand here because of standing on her shoulders because she laid the groundwork and really influenced the way that I began to think so while I was there I transitioned from working at the in Talents Durban for that year to then working as the festival assistant manager so working in print traffic but working as the system manager of the festival and if you know the history of the festival we had quite a turnover of managers at the time some very influential people that I worked with so for an example I'd worked with Pedro Pimenta who had run at the time one of the biggest documentary festivals in Mozambique at the time and was a film producer and he also uh, had quite an impact on myself. I worked with Sarah Dawson who was 
a former programmer of the festival and then also became a manager of the festival at the time and a few other people over the time. And then at this point, I had grown really tired of working full time um, and in the space and I needed kind of a break. I have this weird cycle where I work for about four or five years in a, in a position and then I like decide, no, I need a life change. Um, dealing with, like most millennials, dealing with, dealing with deep existential crisis. Um, I decided, you know, I wanted to take a break and reassess what I wanted to do. And Tiny Mungwe had just left um, at the time and she was starting her own thing and she was starting a film production company and was moving more into directing. And she said, you know, do you want to join my company? And I was like, I'm not doing anything. Why not? I'll, 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 I'll do it. Why not? It's a different, it's a different. And it's a change of space. Yeah. And we didn't uh, do much film production work. We actually moved more into festival consulting. And that's where I had obviously worked with the, in the closeness of the Durban International Film Festival. I worked very closely with the Durban Film Arts and I had grown quite a tight relationship with the former head of the Durban Film Arts at the time, Tony Monti. And they had had another curator from the arts section, um, from the arts industry rather, who was working there called Russell Flongwane, who had done the curation for, I believe, 2018. And then when the year 2019 came around, they had reached out to Tani Mungwe to say, hey, we want you to come and work in the curation of the, of the industry program for the Durban Film Arts. And she, at the time, said, look, she had just moved into a new position, working in a different area. I believe she had just joined Steps at the time. And she said, you know, I can't do it full time. I need someone to help and co-curate with me, which was Mitchell. And obviously, uh, Tony knew me and said, okay, we'll come into the system. And for the first year in 2018, it was the three of us that we did the co-curation. And at that time, I had also met another future business partner who was someone who I would work with and collaborate with quite closely and would also go on to like really influence my thinking was Timber Bimbe. And at that time, we launched, a, we launched a platform called Engage, which we'll talk about a little bit later because it really influenced a lot of my programming work. 2019, it was the three of us. It was the first year we had all worked together as, as the co-curators. Then obviously 2020 happened and Russell stepped away because he had other commitments at the time. So it was just myself and Tiny Mungwa who were the co-curators of the 2020 edition working on that industry program. And then since 2021, I have been the, the main curator and obviously continue to be the main curator of the industry program and programs for the DFM. And while working with Tiny, I had worked with her quite closely in curating the programs of Time of the Writer, Poetry Africa, all those years. So we're looking at in a four-year space of 2014 to 2017, 2018, we've worked maybe that's four years. So it's like two festivals of each of those. So maybe so like four editions of those two festivals as well. So a lot of that thinking, a lot of that knowledge was imparted into me and a lot of that influence came to me. And yeah, as I say, I wouldn't be here without her. I wouldn't be in this very position without her. What goes into the actual thinking of these are the, before we even get to choosing the panel, what is the actual process to decide what is the scope for such a big African film festival or film market? How do you begin to attack the actual process of building scope and understanding what it is the intention of that festival is going to be from a conversational perspective? Well, it's quite a detailed process and it starts with you have to be in touch with what's going on. So for anybody who's ever interested in entering the space of curation, the only way that you'll ever learn is to be influenced by other people. So you have to attend and uh, other markets and festivals, whether it be in the physical or online space, look at what are the discussion points. Are reading a lot of reports as well, a lot of industry publications and journals and reports so that you can understand what are the trends what are some of the discussions that are being had? 
you have to also look at the industry itself and say what are some of the the trends that are happening within the industry so maybe whether it goes to filmmaking techniques but also subject matter that's happening for an example with the talents program which you were part of a lot of it had to do with you know understanding the media landscape and seeing where the media landscape is going so that in itself and full of criticism and how those changes are happening what are the technological changes for us especially for the last three years within the dfm it's been a lot of understanding what are the technological disruptions? So outside of just COVID, what are some of the new technologies that are making themselves present as well? Um, and also, vitally, what are some of the, the, the key topics that are part of that? So you start with attending and watching a lot of other discussion points and looking at the programs that are put together by other curators. That's where you start. And then you start looking about what your theme is going to be. So we then start looking at whether it's going to be disruption or what are some of the trends that you want to go. And once you've settled on the theme, then you start looking at who you're going to be featuring in your program in terms of your headline speakers and what you can do to decide that. And then it also gives it into another context is obviously we've had to throw in things like COVID. So whether it's going to be online, um, whether it's going to be in the physical space, what are some of the issues that might arise with that? So obviously South Africa was one of the very last places to lift its COVID restrictions. So then you start thinking about, okay, well, if we can only have so many people in the physical space and maybe people are not willing to travel to Africa from an international space, how does that influence your programming? So then you have to start thinking about how do you find the correct balance of like keeping it still vitally important and desirable for people to want to attend physically, but also still making it available to people from abroad, because also understanding that maybe some people can't travel. You know, this is also outside of COVID, besides the restrictions of travel, it's been a financially very hard time for a lot of people as well. So maybe people aren't able to physically travel to South Africa, book a hotel for those who, who can't be invited, also budgetary issues. You know, there's spending issues that you have to think about as, a, as an actual event. So can you afford to bring as many people as you did before? But then also you play into another thing is that, you know, with the, the, with the problem of COVID came an opportunity is that you obviously in an online space, you have much bigger uh, audience. So how do you still maintain that? And, you know, we were very lucky at the DFM that we've had very well attended online spaces for the last couple of years. So then how do you still feed into that and not lose that audience as well? So it becomes quite tricky. And a lot of fighting with Excel as well. You know, I spend most of my time in Excel. <laughs> I can imagine as, because I have done a conversation curation, but not nearly at the same level. I think the most I've done was in the, the Reef Digital mm -hmm. Hub in 2019. I think within the three days, we had 12 conversations outside of programming the 50 screenings that we had and masterclasses. And that took full time about four to five months. So when does this planning actually start? Not as long as you would think. So usually, you know, one of the problems where people see an international festival and in markets and maybe in the global north versus the constraints in the global south is that, you know, we don't have the budgets and the, the support that a lot of those festivals and markets have. And though, you know, most of those festivals and markets, they do have a relatively small core team you know, they still have the budgets to be able to entice people or to fund people working for a longer period. So this last edition, we did start a little bit earlier. We had about, let's say, eight months in total to do it, to plan it and deliver it. So, you know, that's still not long. But I mean, I've done ones where we did it in four or five months. When I worked at the International Film Festival, we used to do it within a four-month period because you had key people who worked in, so like myself, I was the key person that worked at the Durban International Film Festival. I still assisted with Time of the Writer. And Time of the Writer ended in March and the film festival was in June, July. So you still had that quick turnover to work on. 
So when you speak about support, just so that we have full content, like film festivals, I don't want to say we have so few of them, but it's a completely different dynamic organizing a film festival, mm-hmm. organizing those types of people. What do you mean when you say in terms of the global north and the global south, the support also when people are now looking at local African or global south film festivals, you understand what it is that you mean when you talk about support and the different levels that a global south festival or market would be functioning as opposed to a global north that would be con versus yeah so like most things when it comes to the the dynamics of the global north global south is that there's an issue of funding and structural support and an appreciation so obviously everyone can do their readings in terms of like the historical and financial context and like what has been left behind in post-colonial Africa or anywhere else in the global south so anywhere in South America subcontinental India uh, subcontinental Asia rather Southeast Asia all of those places but what you do have is first an issue of infrastructure so in and when I say support I talk about not only the infrastructure in a physical sense but also in a support from the governmental sense so in the global south well, rather, let's start in the global north. There's always been an appreciation for cinema and for the arts, and there's been a financial and structural support that comes from at a governmental level, but also at a commercial level and at a structural level. And whether that be some other organizations or private institutions that will help and support artistic endeavors. Whereas in the global south, there isn't that because you know we number one have got bigger issues to deal with, but also number two, there isn't there isn't the same mindset and appreciation for it because they don't see it as in a creative economy. They see it as a creative endeavor. Maybe that has changed and it's starting to change as rather over the last couple of years. I think when you have the rise of like Nollywood, which obviously has shown that there's an economic uh, value in film, but for the longest time that there hasn't been that. So there is obviously there is a level of support that happens at governmental level, but the avenues which you can go and get that support doesn't exist as much. And there isn't as many funds available to Africa or to anywhere else in the global south and what funds they are available you know we're all fighting for it we're all there's all of us are competing for the same pool of funding and and it makes yeah so the more festivals that come essentially the less funds there is to share because we're all exactly and it's a cyclical thing and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a horrible cycle because we need more festivals and more other institutions and and markets to actually help stimulate and grow an appreciation for it but at the same time, you know, when you have only so many limited funding that's available, and a lot of the funds also come from the global north as well, we all end up fighting and jumping through these hoops to get it. And it makes it this vicious cycle that happens where, you know, where you can't, where it becomes extremely difficult. So at a structural level, what ends up happening is that a market or a festival in the global north can, can afford to employ people year round, whereas, you know, a market or a festival in the south may not be able to do that so you're working for a limited amount of times your budget may only be that you can only afford to pay for people to work on the program full-time six months where they may be able to afford to pay for people to exist i mean to occupy those roles for eight nine maybe 12 months if you're lucky maybe even at a full-time position which can also laugh yeah exactly and it makes a big difference as well because if you can work at something for 12 months you can start preparing as soon as you end the mark you can start planning straight away and even though at the time i wasn't employed full-time for the durban full mark as soon as i would finish i would start immediately thinking and start identifying what is going to be the next ideas going forward because this comes from my grandfather's that you don't box hard you box smart and working hard is great but if you work smarter it makes it even better so that would mean that I would start doing my research almost like unpaid research and start thinking about that before the time I actually would even get into the space so that when I have that small window to work I can already hit the ground running so it's not that I'm building and trying and trying to get the breadcrumbs going 
And luckily, you know, for me in my team is that I don't have to worry about the things around budgets. There's somebody who sits above me who I could not do my job without. They worry about that and they sort that out and allow me to do what I need to do. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I work with a great team from, you know, Magdalene Reddy, who is the project manager of, well, she is the head of the Durban Film Arts. And she, she makes sure that I have none of those worries to think about, only tells me what I can and cannot spend and what is available and what isn't available and allows me to flourish, but also has a lot of trust in me to do what I do. So I give her the same trust and respect to do it as well as, you know, I couldn't, a part of my job as well as industry program curator, I can't succeed without having a strong market, which uh, what we call the pitch and finance forum, which obviously uh, Pfizer Williams is the head of that. And she, and she runs and manages that. And without her being able to deliver on that front, which is also a key draw, because I can only get the people interested to want to participate in the DFM because that there's such a prestige attached to the, the market side of it. So to the, the pitch and finance forum. And the same goes for Talents Durban, which is a crucial part of our programming, which is run by Menti Mflongo, who if we if he doesn't deliver a strong program, so we all work in unison. And in terms of that, you know, how that answers, you know, goes to your other conversation or your question rather is that when the Global North in those festivals and markets, their teams might be slightly bigger than us or around the same size in terms of the core staff, but they also have the budgets to go, let's say maybe when the market is maybe six or seven months away to then start employing people to assist us in our core roles six months before ahead of time. Whereas, you know, we may not have that opportunity to do that. So, you know, a lot of the times we work as the, the main people and then once we're able to maybe acquire interns and uh, then only then can we then start having that assistance. And then we're now sharing the workload from there. So a lot of the workload sits on us as well, which is a shared experience in the global South. Let's just say that. Yeah, you are your own department. And a lot of the times you're not just your own department. You are mm -hmm. multiple departments in one. So then with that understanding, and you already stated that the global North, that even additional funds then come from the global North. How much does that then impact the types of conversations that are being curated when funds like those are being attached to festivals and formats like the Durban? Historically, there's always been a little bit of an influence in that. But, you know, for myself, based on, and this comes to something that we'll talk about just now, which is the Engage platform that I created. You know, there's been a large discourse within the Global South about the influence of the Global North. Because we're often having to take their funding, they sometimes want to dictate the types of conversations that you're having. And for myself, I I don't allow it to influence my programming, to be honest with you. I do not take that at all. And I think there's like a big push from curators and also creatives in general, because this happened also in the filmmaking for a long time as well, that, you know, in the filmmaking world, that there were people who would, for your films to get made, you would have to go and take funding from the Global North. And sometimes that was starting to dictate and influence the types of films that were being made or the conversations that were being made or the images that were being made. I think it still does personally right now to this day. For sure, for sure. And I don't think it's still there and it's still prevalent. It's definitely not as accepted as it used to be because it used to be the thing that we, that we often didn't talk about or was talked about in closed quarters, but now it's part of the global conversation. And I think with the with the sort of the democratization of technology and that democratizing the spaces in which people can occupy and share their, their voices, there's also now that conversation that's happening. So for myself, it isn't really an influence. You look, you sometimes will 
work with a partner or sponsor that will say, look, we want to talk about this sort of project or this, this topic, or we'd like to have this person maybe participate in your program. And you say, okay, cool. We'll find a way to do it. For the Durban format, how we approach is that we say, we will find a way to try and have that person or have that maybe touch on that project. If it's a project that you're wanting to launch, that's something you can find your own way to do it, whether it be through like a public announcement or something. But in terms of the actual conversations that we have in our industry program, it, it doesn't influence us. We dictate a lot of what we want to have and what we want to see. And, it's, and I think it's part of one of the, the better parts of working for the Durban Film Arts is that I don't have to, to have that pressure or I don't have to, to deal with that, to be honest with you. And if, it's, if someone does approach it, we often you know, very nicely say, look, that's not what we're about. We would love to work with you and we, let's try and find a middle ground of some sort or some sort of compromise where we can, that works both for the best of us. But because also I think that you lose your own credibility as an institution when you allow that to happen as well. And I think that's something that, you know, is that in our business is the most important thing is that it's being not only being seen, but being seen to be saying, having the right conversations as well and having credible conversations. I think that is deeply, deeply important. Okay. So then in your mind, because I've been wanting to ask a question, but now you've given me a perfect lead of what is a credible conversation in your eyes? What constitutes something that, that feels credible? Yeah, look, I think it all depends on what one's own thing is and who you're trying to talk to. If you're trying to talk to a perfectly mainstream audience, I think, and also it depends on what your audience is. Are you talking to just creators? Are you talking to the industry side? When I say the industry side, I'm talking about everybody that's on the economic who is part of the economic chain that exists within your particular industry not only your stakeholders you're talking about you know your platforms you're talking about your sales agents your distributors you're talking about funders you're talking about not only that you're talking about the audiences you're talking about people who participate in your industry so that whole economic chain whereas if you know you're, you're talking to just creatives you can just talk about aesthetics and creativity and what that is i think a large part of what's also credible is talking about what's in the discourse and what's relevant to the industry as well. You know, one of the complaints that we always have is that there's always a conversation about how to finance your film, but I think that's something that's credible and is relevant. You know, it's one thing to have financiers, but now we've got, you can't have financiers that don't deal with African film occupying a space within your program. You need to have people who are engaged with African film, who are dealing with that, who that's their area of expertise. You got to have people who are knowledgeable about what the area that they, that, or the topic that you're talking about. So it's all well and good having somebody who might have a, a level of popularity and notoriety, but if they don't know what, the, what they're actually talking about, then what's the point in having them there, to be honest with you? So I think that's also a deeply thing. I think, as I say, a lot of the stuff that sits within the public discourse and what's, that's also important. So you have to look at what are people talking about? What is important to the industry? Also thinking of, and speculating about what is important going forward. When you're talking about maybe what used to be termed as a masterclass, how is this relevant to the people that are uh, that your audience is? And when you have an audience that is as big as the Durban Fullmart, which talks to not only creators, but also everybody else in the economic chain, but also acts as a gateway to the African continent for the international audiences and international industry, what is relevant to that? So you have to come with that. That's where you also get to be a bit of a cheeky and you start putting in your own influence. Like for me, I want to talk about radical and disruptive conversations. I want to talk about how we're dealing with these problematic issues that, that happen within the global north and the global south. I want to talk about why there is a lack of funding or support in particular regions in the world. I want to talk about how there are filmmakers and film professionals who are operating in maybe outside of the bigger pillars on the African continent who are doing their thing, who are making it happen. I want to talk about things that are important to me, which is like audience development and grassroots 
audience development and how does that work and who is doing it successfully? Because it's one thing to do things, but also to do things that are successfully making an impact that's important. I want to be able to highlight the voices that are not often highlighted. I want to talk about you know, the appearance of women and queer identity in film, but also in the industry itself. Also, so the people, not only aesthetically, but also on a functional level, why is that? And I think these all falls of what you, what you as a curator or what you as a person find credible and what you find as important and what you want to see. Think Because as much as I'm curating for, this is going to sound like a really terrible and uh, terrible thing, but as much as I'm curating a program that is going to be relevant for audiences. I also want to be able to sit back and listen to the conversations. And there's nothing better than when you, when you plan a conversation and you get the people that you think are going to be good and radical or make for a, an interesting conversation. They actually deliver an interesting conversation as well as there's nothing more heartbreaking than when you plan, when you think you're planning a, a conversation that's going to be enticing and, and great. And it ends up just being a, a, something that we've seen or heard before or a bit of a dud. So answering the question is what do I find credible? It all depends on what one's own idea of credibility is. So can I put you on the spot? Can I ask you to give me an example of both in terms of uh, conversations, for example, for using this year's DFM, a conversation which maybe planned out exactly or even exceeded your expectations and one which maybe not as much as you Okay. This is tough. This is tough. It's kind of like, it's kind of like being asked, what's your favorite child, but not, not as intense. Because I think people do have their own favorite children. And also this is a little bit spicy in terms of, uh, you don't want to piss off. And so I say this with the utmost respect. That's what I'm saying. That you can choose yeah, to yeah. be put on the spot. So right? let me just say this, is that, that I felt like a lot of the conversations that we had this year met my expectations. For an example, a lot of them also went above my expectations. So for an example, uh, we had Donna Sims, who is a very big agent of um, C- uh, for Creative Arts Agency, which is obviously an international r- representation and agency that operates in Hollywood, but globally. And I wondered myself when I was, pro- when I was initially programming this conversation, how would this sit with, a, with an audience of people? And also, you know, someone who works with such big international players, you know, she's been like ludicrous's, uh, like she's been you know just to give you a, a scale of her clients you know she's had everyone from pearl Tusi all the way to ludicrous you know what i mean so i wondered yeah. and we you know and also you know agents naturally are very cagey people they're like lawyers they don't want to they don't want to share too much they don't want to say too much for their own <laughs> yes. for both legally but also for their own uh, ability to like um to to piss off people and she was incredibly open yeah exactly controlling the narrative controlling how and controlling what what your words are and ownership of your own words as well and for me she was completely open and incredibly completely groundbreaking into well not groundbreaking sorry that's the wrong word she's completely open and very approached with an open book and she was very insightful and shared her knowledge with everyone and you know it also comes down to the moderator that you choose to have in those conversations because the moderator and her managed to have like a very open and casual almost like a casual informal conversation and this is why the idea of a master class doesn't sit well with me because that then immediately puts a big gap between you and them uh, you and the audience where it feels like you have to impart your knowledge whereas it's a conversation you can share you can be as open as and as casual as you like and informal so for me that was one that like really broke ground for me the response to a conversation that we had at dfm this year that was co-curated with um the writers guild of south africa which was writing stories after Me Too in the physical in the physical space, 
was incredibly like it was really good and it had its own challenges getting it up to that point getting the conversation to get to the physical space but it was incredibly open and it was so open and honest and very engaging and then I have one which I thought again which which I thought you know it's a conversation not maybe not relevant to everybody which was co-curated in the physical space with the independent producers organization this year which was around the issues around the copyright bill and we've had conversations around the copyright bill yeah. before, and some people have been like, oh, it's a bit of a dead conversation. But for me, I like I thought it was important, but I also didn't understand, I didn't, wasn't sure what the type of audience that was going to be there. And it was a fiery conversation. It was engaging. It was the most explosive conversation I think I'd witnessed of the physical film art. Actually, explosive from the yeah. panel perspective, not even getting to the <laughs> what the audience mm the audience is reacting just the panel against each other or riffing off of each other and what it is that they were saying about yeah specific and then you have conversations that don't land as much like i've, I've in the past a program conversation that we thought it was going to be a great conversation you do all the preparation and come showtime you're just like oh actually i don't feel like sharing as much or someone's not as responsive <laughs> as, someone's not as responsive as as you think as you assume that they're going to be and it just doesn't land as much so it happens you know it happens to the best of us and it happens to the worst of us as well you know sometimes some people get you know I've, I've, I've attended uh discussions in the past where I felt for the curator because you can see that somebody's thought that someone's going to deliver a, a conversation and it's been very lukewarm it's like getting not a, not an iced coffee but a lukewarm coffee there's nothing more disappointing than it you know what I mean yeah because also sometimes we kind of forget that these people are people and some people may have stage fright. Some people may also just like realize sometimes the magnitude of what's going on as it's happening and be like, oh, yeah. should I be sharing so much to this type of audience? Because even I won't lie, um, as we were not doing the prep process for the virtual conversation, it then started dawning on me how expansive this was because not only are you having a Zoom conversation, which is what we're having here, like it's with BFM, we had to do an entire test where you're now speaking for about 10 minutes so that there's an interpreter who's going to then interpret that into mm-hmm. French for French-speaking audience and someone who's interpreting for something else. At the same time, like you guys had this entire production room of dozens of people, if not hundreds, who are there for transcriptions, there to make sure that everything is kind of going right. It's now not just a conversation between me and this person. It is a conversation that's being transcribed. It's being translated. It then now becomes like this entirely different concept than just the general conversation. So it's not just in my mind, just the thing of a person may not deliver because Mm -hmm. they don't have credible information, but also if they're not that type of person and some people may have great information, but they don't know how to Mm -hmm. relay that information and, and be a teacher Within those situations, even as you, as a curator, do you have ways of trying to navigate? Well, I think one of the things is that preparation. What's that uh, That terrible saying? Piss poor preparation makes poor, poor performance. So that's why I think it's deeply important. Yeah. And one of the things that you would have experienced is that what I try to do is try and set up a conversation or like at least a meet and greet beforehand with all participants and the moderators that they're going to be with. As you said, I gave you, like, when we had our discussion, I, I informed you, like, this is going to be a big production. And then when you actually see it, you're like, oh, shit, this is actually a production. <laughs> yeah, like... um, but then it's also about having those conversations. So it's good to, like, when you have those things, just to, n- number one, people, you know, get a familiarity with each other. So it feels more like you're just having a normal combo as opposed to, you know, a deep interview style process. Because 
in a way it is an interview but also the same way that you want it i feel like the best conversations are a thing you don't want us to feel like a job interview as you say you know this space where you can have just like a normal free-flowing conversation for me so there's that so it's setting up it's also then having your moderator and it's just why it's important to also identify good moderators is to have them prepare themselves in the space and be like okay cool like here are some of the questions that I'm working with. This is the direction which I want to have the conversation go in so that you can also put someone at ease. But I mean, also even then that still doesn't happen. Sometimes, I mean, not that it doesn't happen, it still then throws it. So for an example, I don't want to give the person's name away, but we we're having a really vitally important conversation last year. And on the day that one of the participants who had agreed and we had gone through the prep conversation and because of the prep conversation and some other things that had happened in their life, they had called me the morning of, um, so for an ex- well, not even called me, they sent me a WhatsApp um, at 7.30 in the morning and their session was at 10. And they were like, you know, I, I, I can't do this. I, I, I got to pull out. I got to pull out. So, you know, I then had to go, okay, look, I'm going to give away some trade secrets. You first, you, you let them say, look, I understand. I totally understand. Like, I get it. I, and you humanize with the person and you say, cool. Like as a human, because it's happened to me, you know, I've gone into spaces where I think I'm going to, I'm going to rock this conversation. I've gone, oh boy. I actually don't feel prepared. Yeah, I've bitten off I've more, bitten than, I more than I can chew. And then you yeah. say, okay, cool. And then you then give them a little bit of space to breathe. And then you call. And then I had to call them and say, look, the conversation can go can go without you. That's not a problem. But the reality of the conversation is that you have vital importance. I wouldn't have identified and decided to bring you into the conversation if I didn't think you could contribute uh, good. And you bring a perspective and an idea that comes from a different way. So therefore, you know, that I think it's, important that if you do it but also i don't want to put you under pressure i don't want you to not do it i don't want you to get up there and feel like you didn't like you weren't ready to talk because there's nothing worse than seeing somebody sit up there and clam up and go oh like i like sitting right there so it's also that's another thing that we always discuss with our moderators yeah. and with our people and with our participants beforehand it's like if there's even if it's in the preparation meeting if it's something that pops up in your head later that you want to talk about or more importantly that you don't and cannot talk about let us know because we don't want, this is not uh, 60 minutes. We're not here to drop bombs on you and make you feel like you're under attack. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my, my name is, not, my, my people are not Deborah Patter. We're not here to, to ruin it for everybody. So you've been mentioning wanting to speak about Engage and how that fits into this whole ecosystem of how it is that you approach things and the ethos mm-hmm. of which you move. Correct. So thank you very much for allowing us to talk about it. So Engage is a Pan-African think tank that was started in 2018. Uh, sorry, 2019, with myself, Temba Bebe, who is the head of diversity and inclusion and handles a bunch of other curation of industry programs for the Berlinale uh, and the European film markets, specifically within the Berlinale. So, and for those who don't understand, the Berlinale is the, is the Berlin Film Festival, but also does a lot of work with the, with the global staff. And he had met with Tiny Mungwe, who I've mentioned before, um, at another think tank, and they had discussed, you know, they, they participated in this think tank, which was along the lines of decolonial thinking and, um, and, and really unpacking various issues that were pertinent to the African industry. And, you know, we got to talking, we thought, why isn't there more of these sort of situations that are, that are happening? And, but also that there are often these round and closed table, closed table spaces where people can talk and share, but nothing ever happens of it. So the idea is that what we launched in, at Durban in 2019 was to start this to start this think tank that would travel from at different markets and festivals because this is the spaces where people who are the most relevant to the industry 
are there they are in the physical space this is obviously pre-covid yeah so they would be in the space and they would be and if you can acquire them beforehand you could bring them into the space to talk so it evolved from just having industry people but then to also start bringing in people like academics people who sit in at a institutional level but also so institutional level being governments and represent stuff but also people who are not only in the film industry but have the same sort of praxis and ethos in other areas and who have managed to bring it into their work and we get it in and they are these three-day think tanks that that sit in a closed session where people unpack and we talk about various issues so for an example was you know the idea of nat- of the relationship in funding and relationship at not only a funding level but also at a power level between the global north and the global south um, the power of documentaries and why it's important that for for documentaries as a filmmaking tool for the African continent, but also how to change the perception of documentaries, because for a long time, documentaries on the African continent uh, were centered around, you know, news broadcasting. So you would make like maybe a 40 minute thing for CNN or Al Jazeera. So when you say to a lot of people who aren't in the film industry, I make documentaries, they think, oh, you like a news reporter. Yeah, you're an educator. Exactly. Then it was things around funding and then also creating a pipeline. So we obviously launched it in, at Durban in, 20, in 2019. It then traveled to Kataj Film Festival, and we wanted to travel to all the different regions in Africa, working with co-curators from each of those regions, because, you know, we have an idea about the African industry, but we're not from those areas and those regions, and we're not experts in those regions, because as much as that we know, we don't know everything, and we don't know all the people. And as vast as our networks have, and this has been, a, why it's been really important for me to be part of this, program um, or having launched this because then I was introduced to the programmers of color initiative which was launched at Sundance I think in 2018 or 2019 which was a global network of programmers who are of color so that's black brown and obviously a lot of the people who are within us are sit within the queer identity but so it's programmers of color not only in the global north and the diaspora but also operating in the global south and we're able to share work and discussion points and we follow a lot of each other's work uh, within that network. So travels to Kataj Film Festival, where we touched on the Arab issues within the North Africa, Arab region, and looking at the relationship to North Africa, but its own historical and decolonial, uh, its own historical colonial links to France and some of the issues that exist within there. Then we traveled to Afrif, looking at, uh, and for those who don't know, that's the African International Film Festival in, in Nigeria. Yeah. And we there we had an issue that was sort of centered around West Africa and the, the not only the Nigerian film industry, but Anglophone West Africa. And since it's, we obviously had a session at Berlinale because it's the biggest point for Africa at the diaspora. It's one of the biggest rather at, at the EFM. So we had a program there. And then obviously since COVID, we've now had a lot of online activities, a lot of what we call fireside chats. So it's like many think tanks. So and the format is that you have these three-day think tanks that then have a public-facing panel where we identify key topics within that conversation that we want to then bring as part of the discussion points in the public-facing panel, but then also create literature that sits around that. So we're currently right now working on completing a series of reports from all our activities that we've had in the think tank at a think tank level that will then go on to kind of highlight some of the issues that exist within the African industry, but part of the main part of what we do within the, our think tanks is look at solutions and look at what are some of the actionable practical ways that we can actually have some of these changes. The idea of it was that we wanted to foster not only information sharing amongst the African continent, but also collaboration. And so what we'll do is often that we'll have is that we'll have people who may participate in Southern Africa, but also 
and are experts in the Southern African region, but they're also sitting in, let's say, at Kataj with people who are, who are part of the North African region. So, and experts in that area, and we're able to information share. So like, for example, when we were in Nigeria, because we had a lot of people from East Africa, but also the rest of West Africa wanting to come and talk and understand the financial models that, were, that existed for, for Nollywood filmmaking and distribution in that area, because obviously there's a, it's a much more financially viable area. So part of the plan as well is that we want to, we want to do Anglophone West. I mean, we've done Anglophone West Africa. We want to do Francophone West Africa. Uh, we want to do more of the Arab region, but we also want to do Lucifer Africa because to us, that's very important. And Lucifer Africa, for those who may not understand, it's Portuguese speaking. Yeah, I was about to say, can, we, can, we, can we, for the people who may be in, introduced to Francophone, Lucifone, just yeah. break that down so that we have a better understanding. Um, sure. So Anglophone, just to go back, Anglophone is English speaking. Um, Francophone is French speaking. And then Lucifone is Portuguese speaking. Africa. We work with practitioners from that area, a lot of people who also share a lot of the same ethos as us, um, which comes from a very deeply decolonial approach. And, you know, we're a space where you can have these hard conversations, but then also share the information with the public as well, and in the industry at large as well. So, yeah, we've been very lucky and very blessed to do it. We've been to a couple of uh, festivals and markets. We've also had a lot of work in the diaspora. So, for an example, I've mentioned the EFM, but we did something at Toronto Film Festival in 2019, working with a lot of the people from the Caribbean. We recognize the Caribbean as part of the African diaspora because it shares such a deep intrinsic link with Africa. And it's a lot of its Black population, obviously, has its origins in Africa as yeah, well. Yeah, and the historical movement and just the population, except the world of population dynamics, yeah. Exactly. And we recognize them as part of the African continent, as we also recognize the diaspora as part of the African continent. Just because you live somewhere else doesn't mean you're no longer African, you know? And I think that's something that's also deeply important. So we've been, we've been doing that since 2018. I think we've done uh, four think tanks and three fireside chats in the last couple of years and in a couple of panel discussions as well. We're hoping to launch a publication of our reports sometime next year, inshallah. So if people wanted to then get more information about that, where can they actually go to then get a deeper understanding? Because you have given a lot of information in one yeah. world that people might want to sit with just a little bit more. In the words of Fredro Starr from Onyx, you have to do your Googles because we're, we're a small team. It's literally run by just the three of us. But we are very lucky in that in each of the regions and each of the think tanks, we've worked with institutions that have been happy to collaborate with us and provide us some form of institutional support. But we're currently working on being able to publicize all our information. But if you look in the archives of all of, if you do engage and search of the, the four platforms that I've mentioned, you'll find it. You know, we did something for Cairo International Film Festival as well. There was a collaboration between Cairo and Durban. So yeah, so there's that as well. So you can find it. There's also been stuff at Aftus Workshop where we had a conversation with other platforms that were similar to us as well. That was in 2019. So right now we're working on getting it up, but like most grassroots things, as I said, you know, as most grassroots things in the global South, it's a little hard to get it up without the institutional support. So if there's any people who want to bankroll this thing, uh, <laughs> holler at us. But for real, we're, we're very lucky. We work with Soon enough, we'll be publishing through our media partner, which is Awatele, which is a very great industry publication for Africa, especially it's both in French and in English. So for all the viewers across the continent who's, who maybe English is not your first language, please find it. You can find it on if you just do a search of Awatele, you will definitely find us. We're working with them. We will obviously also publicize through all the institutions that we've worked with previously as well. 
we're looking at maybe next year we'll have a full publication with all the information on it. So now a lot of our conversation and the whole point of this conversation was to get into the world of programming. And I find it interesting that both you and I have gotten, well, at completely different levels because... Uh... It's still programming. It's <laughs> yes. still programming. It's just still at different scales. At completely different scales. But both of us got into programming. I want to say through the back door, but through ways which were not like this was... Non-traditional route. Yes. Non yeah. <laughs> Non-traditional routes into programming. Mine was actually through my own festival and then through a reef. But if, as someone who now has done this in so many different capacities, if someone is now listening, listening to this and they wants to get into programming and into becoming curatory voices i'm not sure if i'm actually curatorial a curatorial voice once to become a curatorial voice what would be some of the best steps to actually start and then actually what are some of the things this, besides the tools that you've already given them tools to then think about how to actually start making an impact within curatorial spaces as industry programs it's tough hey i think one of the things that you got to really look at is firstly i would say I've highlighted it before, but I can't highlight it anymore, is you've got to attend other spaces where these sorts of conversations that you're interested in is being said. And whether it is through a festival or a market, reading other panel conversations, reading other you know, industry publications, but also attending the, the festivals to identify the people that you want to have in your conversation as well. I think that's also very important. I think finding a platform is, is important. And, you know, something that you just mentioned is that if you can't find a platform to do it, start your own. You know, even this podcast is a curatorial space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Though it sits as an interview space, you know, you're creating a conversation that's happening here that's in the space. There is an interesting platform that's launched this year um, called Curate It, which is a free plug. They don't sponsor me. I wish they would. Um <laughs> It's quite expensive at the moment and it's in the beta phase, but it will be up and ready, I believe, at the end of this year, where you are able to curate your own film festival program and also talks through that space. Creating a platform, I think, is the most important, whether that be, you know, even if it's like a monthly sit down at a, renting a venue somewhere or working with a venue somewhere. And you're saying, hey, we just want to set up like four seats and we want to have five people come and talk about this, th about this thing. That's also doing it. You know, I, I mentioned I come from a punk background, which was a lot of do-it-yourself uh, initiative. And if you couldn't, if you didn't have the money to do it, you find a way to do it, uh, whether it be, you know, negotiating or bartering with it. So I think that's, that's important. I think trying to find mentors as well is important in a way. And I, I discovered this when I was a little bit older, um, when I was around 26, 27, I started to identify people who, number one, I respected and watched and mirrored their work but then also unpacked with them so you know as i said i'm very lucky i'm part of this thing called the programmers of color which is something that you can just uh, which you can sign up for and in there they share a lot of information about you know not only jobs but also discussions and access and and conversations that are happening around the world especially within within members of the of its own program so you know finding your tribe is, de is definitely important i think um, and then also identifying the topics mostly that you want to talk about because you, it's all well and good having a space and having a context, but if you don't know what you want to talk about, I think you, that's deeply important. And so finding what is important to you and finding a way to, to deliver that. Um, and it also just doesn't have to be conversations. It could be even, you know, we used, to, I, I worked, you mentioned something that, I, I, you know, I used to throw events and that was, you know, we were creating parties. I worked with somebody who had an identified 
it was his company and he had a history of throwing these parties that providing these parties that weren't available to us in Durban at the time. And I joined him and helped him worked with him. And that in itself also influenced a lot of it. So find what you want to curate, find the space to find the platform to curate and then go for it, you know, just, just do it. And the more you do it, people will, will, will notice it if it's good, if it's relevant, but also do not be, you know, as stubborn and as driven as you have to be, you have to be open to criticism and you have to be open to hear from it because it's all well and good as you know i mentioned something earlier where it's just like i curate programs for myself but also i do curate for an audience and i have to listen to what that audience is saying and what they say and i can't take it personally maybe some maybe there's a conversation that i've curated or a film that i've programmed you know in the past i've programmed films that i was like yo that's that i love this film and it needs to be here but the audience doesn't love it you know so what's the point in doing it you know we've had djs in the past you know i've worked when I was curating parties, we've thrown events and parties that we thought people would love and nope, it didn't land. And you're like, well, lesson learned on that point. So you have to listen to your audience, you know, but also sometimes you also have to be a little bit stubborn and say, look, this is something you also have to have conviction in what you're saying and saying and being like, maybe this is not what the audience is used to, but I think it's relevant. And this is reason why it's important. Let's highlight it for this, re- for this reason. So it's, it's finding a fine balance of, your, of conviction versus, you know, understanding. And yeah, as I say, be open to criticism because, and also knowing that there will be, there'll always be criticism, but some of it, you have to be able to discern what's relevant criticism and what's irrelevant criticism, because also you'll never make everybody happy. I've come to learn that. And then there'll also be people who will feel like they should be in the space that you're in or that you put somebody else in. And they feel that they're relevant. And then you say to yourself, well, is that actually relevant? Are they relevant to the conversation or anything like that? I would also want to summarize, because I think you said a lot, in terms of curatorial spaces is, I think a lot of that also kind of has to do with vision. Because Mm. I also feel like a lot of the times when people have curatorial needs, some of the time it's because what you feel you want to talk about isn't being spoken about so for me it was a lot of it felt like the digital landscape was not being explored academically or in ways that could provide depth which is what made me start like next gen grades which then Mm -hmm. turned into a festival and all of these things and i would check for other places but it became like a defining part of if i'm having this conversation what problem is it trying to solve or what market is it trying to then appeal to? And once you have like a North Star, it becomes a lot easier to then find ways to exploit it. So even African film was, we were in lockdown and how do mm-hmm. I exploit having actual African film conversations now that I have access to people? I'm speaking to someone in Belfast right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we're now talking about this, but it's centered on African cinema in a way that hopefully people who are as curious as I was 10 years ago now have places to then offshoot different conversations. So, but it's always tied right back to African cinema. So I think also having a not, and which is what differentiates this from Next Gen Grades, because I would never have this conversation yeah. on Next Gen Grades. So having like a North Star that makes you understand like what the vision is, then allows you to then also understand what criticism is valid and what criticism may not be valid because if the criticism which is coming to you isn't reflective of what your mission is maybe you can let it go if it is then maybe you can incorporate it but 
if, if I'm making sense. Of course, as Mary J. Blige once said, there's there's no need for hateration, you know, sometimes. And it's, you've yeah. got to factor that into what you're doing. But as you said, you know, having the vision and the idea of what you want to do and what you want to see. In journalism, they teach you something about writing a story and it's the basis of any writing of any story. And it's called the five W's and, and the H. And for those who don't know, it's what, who, when, where, and how. And I've taken that into everything that I do. What is it that I'm doing? Who will I be working with? Oh, when is it going to happen? Where is it going to happen? And how is it going to happen? And I think that's definitely important. And you can interchange those and you can find ways to make that work for you. And that has is, is become a thing that has stayed with me since I was very young in terms of how do you then program? How does that, how does that work in terms of what you're delivering? Because in journalism, they teach you that because you're writing stories for an audience. Again, you're, you're going to an audience, you're delivering news to an audience. And how is it relevant to the audience? So I think also having that in terms of your curatorial ideas is very important, I think just for me and with that we're going to wrap up but i think i'm going to like try and plug my conversation so i don't think i've actually asked you this so i'm, I'm curious to understand what you thought of our dfm conversation so maybe you can explore what the dfm conversation that we actually had was and what your thoughts on the conversation is so that people can then decide whether they want to go listen to it on dfm or not yeah so again uh, before we begin you can find all our conversations on the durban format durbanformat.com or today or just do your googles uh Devin for math and you will be able to find the the conversation but the reality of the situation is for me that was a personal conversation that i wanted to platform because as someone who consumes media i consume a lot of media whether it be written or audio or even video media and someone who's had a deep appreciation for film criticism because you know as someone who sure i share this experience with a lot of people is that besides finding films through piracy a lot of the ways that we found films that were being delivered to us was through the criticism of others, whether it be formal criticism of it being written um, that you would read, whether it be like the, the Ebert or everybody else. There's a, there's a woman whose name has just escaped me, who's probably the best film critic I've read right now. But it's a very relevant conversation for me. And as someone who comes from a media background, who's been part of the media industry, I've foreseen the decline of print media and so for me, I thought it was really eye-opening, especially having, you know, having a perspective of someone from two different regions as well. You know, you, especially being someone who's almost like a startup sort of way, you know, your ground level, like you, you, you built your thing organically. Whereas Nikita's conversation came obviously from the space of, she came from the multi-choice talent factory, uh, which you also participated in, but hers was in a different space. You know, her platform was given to her, was not given to her, was through rather, the multi-choice funded yeah exactly so to have those different and that's why i talk about differing perspectives and conversations makes it for better for me i thought it was extremely extremely not for me personally it wasn't that eye-opening because i have a lot of the background knowledge but i think for the person that may not have it and maybe just a maybe even just an average consumer of of media or who has who has an average interest in film criticism and the media around film Having that understanding as well, um, who may not so who may not have as deep of an understanding, if, I think that conversation is extremely relevant because I think it's going to be how we're going forward in the future are going to be consuming media. I have this conversation with my father who is still in the print media business. Is that we're lucky in South Africa because this thing is it should have been well past its sell by date, but somehow the food is still staying somewhat fresh. If this was knickknacks, you know, it would be a miracle. So, it's, <laughs> but I think we we have to reconcile it at some point. You know, even if we look at how 
the algorithms and social media works is that we're getting stuff that's coming through an audiovisual content. It's no longer written. As mad as Twitter has, and relevant as Twitter has always been, a lot of the content now on Twitter is becoming video and audio based. So I think we're getting into that space now. So I would say for anybody who has an interest in number one, film criticism, but also where the future of film criticism lies. And three, also to hear three film critics just chat amongst themselves and being yourself in Nikita, but as well as uh, Taryn Joff, who herself is a curator, but also a film critic. That's a, that's a conversation that's a must have. I would also recommend that anybody who's interested in understanding the film landscape in general should not only watch that conversation, but watch all conversations that are available on the Durban Film Arts website in the archive section. Yes, if you'd like to hear three writing-based film analysts geek on films as well, because we did some massive geeking in that, especially on I Am Not A Witch, mm -hmm. um, you will get that information there also as to how to start your own podcast or the dynamics and thinkings around film criticism and working within film analysis on, on a digital space. Yeah. And with that, I would like to say thank you so much for giving us nearly two hours of your time to get into this conversation i genuinely believe there's a lot to unpack even from this conversation and there's a lot more conversations which i think we could have even on separate platforms like all that yes and your upcoming platform conversations i believe curatorial spaces and conversations are, are an important space because they allow people to get information which they may not have had or to just even deepen their understanding of things which they may not have had access to and immediately after African cinematic landscape is one which is so depthful, but I feel so underreported that we have so much work to cover into just giving good context as to as to where we are with all the different perspectives as to what this means and the more perspectives we have i think the better it becomes for people who are trying to find their footing see what's come before and also what's happening now and conversations allow just that and we have been pushing conversations from a continental from a global perspective on these things for quite some time and it is immeasurable and impactful work that you do and i just wanted to say thank you for giving not only giving us your time but for the work that you do and allowing us to unpack a bit of all of that on this space well uh, thank you for number one as someone who can't take compliments thank you very much for those very kind words i really i firstly thank you for kind words but also for allowing me into your space into your platform but also thank you to the audience that have sat through uh, this very long-winded conversation. But I, I really hope that people got something out of it. But then one last thing is thank you to everybody in the industry that I've ever worked with because I could not do this without them. Whether it's, whether it's friends or just colleagues in general, whether we participated on a program or I've sat with you and had a conversation in the, in, on coffee around the topic that's maybe gone down further into a conversation down the line, or to the actual people that I've actually ever worked with in any sort of event or market or festival. Thank you. And then again, thank you to the audience. And that is the fourth episode of season two of African Film. Uh, thank you for exploring the African film landscape with us.